RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. My name is Caleb Sunstead. I run Sounds Like Crows, and I'm joined today, not by Brian, but by Dusty. Dusty, how are you doing today? Hey, Caleb. I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great. And I'm joined by Mike. Hey, Caleb. How's it going? It's going great, guys. Hey, thanks for having me on your show. I'm excited to be here again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for doing the intro. That's uh, that's, that's a bit of fun for me to be on the show introduced by someone else. Yeah, first time, right? Yep. Uh, uh, Brian did it once when he interviewed me. But uh, absolutely first time for a guest. You can hold that over Tanner's head. I got it. Yeah, that's right, Tanner. You go to hell. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we like to hear on RPG Lessons Learned. (laughs) Absolutely. So last episode, we talked about a Westmarch game and how you can run it and how I ran it. But this episode, guys, we're talking about the stuff I love that you do on this show, which is we're talking about the stuff that I screwed up and the lessons you can learn from me if you want to run a West March game. Awesome. Yeah, t- take us through the topics, and I'm sure we'll have lots of questions for you. Cool. So uh, we kind of have some successes and failures interspersed here, and I'm going to start with one of my favorite successes. This is something that has changed the way that I play RPGs. So we use a service called Slack, which is a messaging service. You can set up channels in it for a variety of topics. You can direct message each other. You can post videos and images. And what I really use, what I use Slack for every game now is for taking care of the bookkeeping that you don't want to have to waste time at in the session. So if, if players go shopping, you go, hey, you go shopping, you buy some stuff, let's figure that out on Slack. Anything that's boring that you don't need to play out, anything that's going to be real metagamey, you just say, guys, let's stop that. Let's take that to Slack. And you can get back to doing the stuff that's hard to do when you're not at the table, which is role-playing. So um, we've looked at Slack. And and if I had to describe it to the audience, um, I mean, it, it's a collaboration tool, plain and simple. If, if mm-hmm. you know, I, I work in a professional environment with a lot of project management, if you've used some of the more robust features of SharePoint, if you've used IBM Connections, um, if you've used Microsoft Teams, it's it's very much like that it, it, it's specifically meant to be a collaboration space and i find i really like i really like it so i didn't know about it caleb before you sent us these show notes and, and I, i've been playing with it for a couple of days and i just sent a, a, a slack to these guys earlier today um again last episode we talked about the mmo um analogies yeah if, if you played world of warcraft everyone who's played world of warcraft knows about baron's chat so having different channels, I don't know if you did it by, you used the term biome or, or zone last yeah. episode. Did you have a channel per biome or per zone? Like, like how did you decide how to divide out the channels where people could post messages and chat? I'm pulling up the list right now. Here we go. No worries. <laughs> that would have been a great idea, Dusty, but I did not do that. <laughs> um, so I had one for um, bookkeeping, so general stuff like, hey, this person took this item home, or I'm spending this money on this potion at the shop. We had a channel for recaps. I gave people XP for recapping the game for me, because I was running so many I just didn't have time. So you could get XP by doing that, and um, recording stuff like where you picked up a magic item up from. So if we needed to look it up, I know I knew which location it came from. We had one for journals, which was in-character recaps. Um, it wasn't used very frequently. Maybe like every other session, someone did a journal. Um, we had one for rumors, which was me and the players um, posting hooks. And then if I liked a hook, I'd make it, you know, I'd write a location for it somewhere in the world. Uh, we had one for scheduling. We did table talk, you know, just if you wanted to screw around. And then I, th- I think that was it. We had two or three for in-character role play in different areas of the town. So you had one for like the tavern everybody hung out in and then one for the general town. So you log into Slack and on the left-hand side, you see all the channels. 
When you click a channel, you see the messages in that channel, so it keeps everything topical. Um, how did your players engage with Slack? Were they were they mostly? And I'm asking for context. Are they on mobile? Like, are you getting a lot of stuff throughout the day? Is it mm. mostly immediately after a session? Like, like what's the context of people using the tool? It's mostly mobile. I think it's about eighty percent mobile usage, twenty percent desktop usage. If they were writing up a journal or something, they probably did it um, on their computer. It was mostly people like on their lunch breaks on on you know breaks just trying to role play with each other or at the end of the day you'd catch up with some uh scenes that people would start with you on slack for me specifically players were hitting up npcs if if because i had six players if one of them said hey i want to go talk to the blacksmith about this half the time i'd go we're not going to do that we can do it on slack i'm not wasting everybody's time and then we would play that out later on slack you know, that uh, that takes me back to something we've struggled with consistently across all our campaigns that we've made attempts to do, but we've never been successful at. And that's that, you know, in-between game upkeep, you know, paying paying your rent, paying your room and board, keeping track of your inventory, what's in the bank, what's in players. I- I'm wondering if uh, if maybe Slack isn't something we could use for even our smaller campaigns to help keep that out of the game and in-between games rather than taking up table time with it. Actually, it's funny you say that, Mike. I, I've been experimenting with Google Sites as a, as a collaborative place that looks nice. That way, you know, folks that listen to the show could go check out our, our most recent campaign notes in a in a very viewable way. But Google Sites, as pretty as the new sites is, it's just not a great collaboration tool. I'm liking the idea of using Slack and then copying and pasting over to Google Sites. You know, once a week or so, have a little have a little project where I copy and paste over good stuff because I just can't see us all editing the same Google site. Yeah, I can see that. If if you're not using it for a West March group, what my Star Wars group does that plays once a month is we have a channel for scheduling, recaps, and shopping. And that's mostly takes care of the stuff you need to do between sessions. And there's one RP channel, um, but it doesn't get used as much in a normal game as it does in a West March game. Ooh, I, I the, the, my my inner. I don't want to use the term OCD because I've learned that that's ableist because I don't actually have OCD. My inner organization freak. How about that? Um, my inner organization freak. I could just see having a million different channels. Like I, I, I want to have a channel for just transactions. Whenever gold pieces change hands, I want to have it like mm-hmm. like like a, like a check memo book. Almost, I want to have a a channel for XP. Every time I award XP to anyone for any reason, it's all right there in that channel. And my inner organization freak is also thinking if I impart some kind of syntax onto those posts, I could scrape them out later into a database and report on it. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. I, it's, it's, oh, it, all the data nerds go, <laughs> It might be best that I don't think about this <laughs> too terribly hard. All right. So Slack, got it. So so have a collaboration tool. Huge you know, success for your group. Important to... Uh, Stay organized, stay on track? Absolutely. And then we also utilized a spreadsheet, just a Google Drive spreadsheet, where I kept track of everyone's like XP sessions played. There's a few random stats, like how many times they died, and then uh, their level. And, man, that's that's going into our first failure, you guys. The level disparity in this game was real and terrible. There were... I didn't put any restrictions on it. Any player could show up to any session. And how West March, how a West March's style game works is you can go off in whatever direction you want. So if you have a level 14 player, level 12 player, level 10 player, and then three level twos show up, well, you have this really awkward situation where all the high level players want to take the level two somewhere where they're not going to have a good time. And most of the time, that's what happened is they would take the lower level players out because they go, hey, it's an MMO. We're going to level you up. We're going to power level you. We're going to take you out of this zone you shouldn't be in and you'll get a whole bunch of XP. The problem is when you're at a table playing an RPG, it is not fun to power level. (laughs) Yeah, I can't imagine anything. I was going to say that. That sounds like a punishment. Like All those things that seem like like in an MMO, Mike, when, when we played World of Warcraft and, and you would help me grind levels because Mike was always ahead of me. Mike was always 
20 levels higher than me. Um, it was fun because we could talk about work. We could talk about these metagame things, these real things while, while grinding out these mindless tasks in the MMO, but in a, in a tabletop campaign where it's not mindless, it's very mindful. It's very story driven. It's very interaction driven. So trying to turn that into a grind, oh, I, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't be interested. Plus, there's such a focus, I think, in D&D 5th edition, which is what we played on balance, that if you took the other route and you went to an area where the lower level players would have fun, then the player that was level 15, they had no chance of dying. And the area which should have provided a challenge and stood, should have been something fun for the players to overcome just became that one player annihilating a third of all of the enemies the players encountered with no real danger or consequence. Ooh. So in our Pathfinder campaign, this wasn't a problem for us at all. And I, and I rarely talk about the math of systems, but one of the great things about the, the, um, exponential curve of XP in, in Pathfinder and in most of their D20 games is it sort of creates this, this rubber band between the players levels, because it's really tough to get more than a level ahead of, of players all in the same game because of the type of XP that you're getting off enemies, you know, because getting to the next level takes twice as many XP, mm. it's tough to get more than a level ahead. And then because you naturally gravitate toward the enemies at, at the top of your difficulty band, it's really tough for, for players that are slacking to get more than a level behind because they'll be picking up all this XP and they only need half as much XP to level. So yeah. we were never more than a level apart in our Pathfinder campaign, despite some absenteeism, you know, thanks to the math, which I think is, is pretty well thought out. But I guess Wes Marches takes the math of, of D&D, Pathfinder, D20, and really, you know, cranks it up to 11 as far as the extremes you're dealing with. Yeah, and to be fair, I did break it a little bit. I gave out XP for people doing recaps, for people that took notes for me, for people that role-played on uh, Slack, I think even. There was quite a few ways to gain experience outside of just playing. Um, that being said, D&D 5th Edition, if you look at the math for... And this is going to be boring to most of your listeners, but if you look at the math, it purposefully keeps people in the middle levels. It purposefully keeps people between levels like five and 12. And after you get over that hump, if you look to the CR monsters that should be thrown against the players, the gameplay speeds up again. So it's like a, it's like a bell curve where they stay in the middle a long time, you know? I never looked at that. So how did you, to keep making the MMO analogy, um, I know when the Star Wars MMO came out, uh, the Old Republic, Knights of the Old Republic, whatever it was, um, they had a rule where you could you could pair up with your friends that were higher level, and you would automatically gain half their level. City of Heroes, City of Villains Ooh. had this sidekicking concept where you yeah. could temporarily power up for an adventure. Did you use anything like that to solve the problem, or did you ever solve it? Never solved it. Uh, big failure for sure. That is an interesting idea. The concept I've been playing around it with is uh, just capping who can play with each other, um, like section off the game into four separate uh, categories of players, like levels one through four, levels five through nine, etc., and then make adventures that are, okay, if you're between five and nine, you can show up for the session. If not, wait for another one. But the idea of temporary level temporarily leveling someone that's super interesting you'd have to figure out a way to do it easily at the table i think but that's not a bad idea i would give them the hit points or the hit die and yeah. i'd give them the base attack bonus but i wouldn't give them any of the feats so i would so hey we're temporarily leveling you which means let me you know because so now you're level you're two levels below that's that's the as far as you can get they're level 11 you're now level nine which means Here's how many hit die you have. Here's here's your base attack bonus. Everything else in your character sheet stays the same because this is temporary. That might be a quick way to do it where that wouldn't require a lot of prep and it would make them tougher to kill. And thanks to bounded accuracy, 
in fifth edition, you wouldn't have to worry about AC. Um, yeah. And it also, it's not so much of a, of a reward, the temporary leveling, because they don't get to have their feats, they don't get to have their powers, they don't get to actually, yeah. um, because of that, it still encourages them to actually level up for real. Man, I want somebody to try this now. I want somebody to try out a bunch of different methods and then come back to me with the data so I can just pick the best one and not have to go through that slog. <laughs> not have to figure yeah. it out. Hey, if you're listening and you've solved a level disparity problem in your campaign, please, please write us at RPG, um, rpgllpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, or tweet at me, Sounds of Crows. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you could do something with could do something with magic items, maybe. Um, but that was that was another problem we had. Uh, another big failure was uh, fifth edition has this idea that players aren't supposed to get a lot of magic items. I don't know if you felt that way from reading the b- rule book, but that's the impression I got. Whereas in Pathfinder, it's like you know, by the time you're halfway through the game, you should have a different magical item on each finger and each toe, and just be rolling through stuff. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Mike Merle's talked about. So Mike Morales, for those of you, I, it's fun to geek out with someone else who's familiar with, with 5th edition and its genesis and all that. I loved 4th edition. And unfortunately, 4th edition required magical items for, for players to be able to keep up. The leveling yeah. and the math and the balance required it. GMs had to give out magic items at, at certain intervals, and it became kind of weird to shoehorn it into your game. So that so they Wizards of the Coast took that as a, lessons learned, as a lesson learned about 4th edition. And what they did with magic items in fifth is that you, they're optional. You can definitely give them to your players, but if you do, you should probably occasionally give some to your monsters. Like maybe that a quick way to make that orc a little tougher is to give him a plus one or a plus two sword. The biggest issue I had is that while they claim, sorry, Mike Rolls, that the items are optional, that was not my experience. So many things in the game were overcome they were resistant to all damage except magical damage. And it got to a point where if you want your martial classes to feel useful, they have to have magic items. And I was so hesitant because I hadn't played 5th edition for long enough to introduce those items that I think a lot of my martial players got frustrated. Well, I don't think. They told me they got frustrated. Um, so, so I would definitely hand out magic items a lot more liberally, I think is the lesson I learned. Interesting. And it's just fun. It's just fun. If you're going to be going full hex crawl, full dungeon crawling, you know, counting how many miles you move, why not go for the whole experience and hand out ridiculous treasure all the time? So would you consider rolling it, or do you think you would design it for the players? Oof. Ah, man. I've actually had this discussion with one of the players. In that game, fairness came above all else. I made sure that if I set a precedent for a ruling, I kept that ruling through every session that occurred. Um, So I feel like it would be unfair to give people an item specifically made for them. And also, if you've got 30 players, man, I just don't think I could put the time into doing that. And if you get to the point in that kind of game where you're letting a lot of players design items for themselves and taking the workload off you, I think that could be really disastrous with the wrong players as well. Yeah, so I could like to consider myself a, a very ethical gamer, and I certainly would never fudge roles. I would never cheat. But if you told me to design my own magic item that I needed a quest for, oh, ho, 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 ho. Yeah. yeah. There, <laughs> there will be some nights spent with graph paper and a calculator <laughs> well, I come up with the most like like what is the perfect sword for my character? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. be able to stop myself from thinking that way just because of the fun intellectual thought experiment of that. Yeah. So maybe redo, make your own unique item tables, and maybe make them individually for each biome. That would be really cool. Ooh, that's fun. Um, I also really like the idea of legendary encounters, kind of like how Pokemon has shiny Pokemon. That level of rarity for encounters and items and stuff that you know two players are going to come across in a hundred sessions seems really cool but i never put the time into doing that yeah and maybe have one entry on on the rolling table during the 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 shiny encounter where where uh the player where you could tell the player hey you've heard a rumor about a magical weapon in this area that you really wanted 
quickly tell me about it as fast as you can. You have to start right now and you have 10 seconds. Go. That's a cool idea, springing it on them so they would get something they asked for, but not something they had time to metagame. Fun. Um, yeah, so those were two really big failures. Um, a success I had was using music, which uh, I try to use on my actual play, but you know, trying to find music that is not licensed is very difficult. Um, we do have one guy doing it for us, but I mean, it's just expensive. But if you have access to Spotify, if you have access to YouTube, uh, a lot of these services let you build playlists. And I built a playlist for each biome. And for each biome, I made one when they were exploring, like hand curated a list of songs um, for exploring when they were in combat. Once one player had gone down, once one player had reached zero hit points, and then a playlist if somebody had died, each sort of scaling up in intensity. And I think it really helped some of those moments. I was really happy with that. I have to ask a purely practical question. How are you managing? So, so you're GMing. Is a laptop in front of you? Is it an iPad? Is it a tablet? Like, like what's in front of you as you GM? Sure. I actually... I think you would be are going to be opposites on this, Dusty, but I really hate digital tools for DMing. I find myself, like, if I have more than one sheet in front of me, I have problems because I'm just not going to reference anything. Even when I only have one sheet in front of me, I, I have a hard time referencing it. Uh, out of necessity for this one, I used a laptop, which just had one Google Docs file with all of the hexes um, numbered. Right, so it would be hex one, so it'd be one dot two for hex one location two, and then if there was a sub location within that, it would be dot twenty three. And so if players went somewhere, I could just control F find, type in the number, and then I could read off what it was. Um, I tried to print it off, and it just it didn't work. I wish I could have pulled that off. Um, and I have that, and then I had my mobile phone using spotify and that was hooked up to a bluetooth speaker and that's all i ran with so how johnny on the spot were you with the musical cues like are you watching a player's hit points dwindle and you've got your finger hovering over the character death button or the character that someone says oh i'm down and you're like ooh, 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 i've got a song for that like how'd that work at the table oh really well actually yeah i was pretty spot on i think most of the time you can the longer i dm the more you can see the rhythm in gameplay. Players break up tense moments with humor, uh, like without, without hesitation, they do it. So after something terrible happened, there would always be a reaction from the players. And if, when it was coming to the monster's turn that could down them, I would be making sure I had that playlist ready in case he hit. Um, yeah. I mean, That's awesome. I, I've had very mixed... Well, I won't say mixed success. It's been it's it's been a failure. I've I've tried sound effects in my games and it just doesn't work. Like I, I think my sweet spot and and Mike, tell me if I'm wrong. My sweet spot is props. Mm -hmm. I can lean on a prop all day long. Um, maps I I do okay with, but I've tried music. I've tried sound effects. I've tried um, 3D terrain and just those things. I I just don't feel as good about. I would agree with that. I, I think some of your failure with music us has been, or music has been us as a group too, right? I, th I think us as a player base, we found that a little more distracting than we did enhancing. That, that's fair. Yeah, it's definitely not for everybody. So if, if your players don't enjoy it, don't invest time into it. Uh, but I think in my experience, it definitely helped me cheat a lot of those moments where it's a lot easier to make a death meaningful if there's some track swelling up in the background as you're narrating their death man i would love to i would love to do that i would love to figure that out i see my issue is you're right it's the opposite of yours i have too many things on my screen so managing the show notes the doc the chat yeah. the wiki um all the stuff i'm referencing and pulling up spotify fast enough i i would have to figure i'd have to think about that but i, I want to do it you know, we we all, I well, I think we all as RPG players, we we love those RPG episodes of our favorite show, and I love the It crowd when Moss is able to play that ruddy, mysterious music at just the right moment. 
that's been a goal of mine to achieve and I still haven't been able to do it. So my hat's off to you for achieving what, what I've not been able to. You could also hand it off to one of your players if they're interested. I do that in the Star Wars game that my brother runs where I'll run music in the background. And if he has something in mind coming up, you know, he'll send me, we play that game online. He'll send me a DM a couple minutes in advance. Hey, queue up something epic and I'll just run music for him. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so I, I felt good about music, but this is RPG lessons learned. We got to do some failures again, you guys. Um, I tried to make travel interesting and hard. I liked the idea of people tracking their rations and seeing how much food they had. Um, a big theme for me was death. People, um, I started every game with like this mantra saying, hey, you'll probably die this game. And I tried to push that throughout everything. But in D&D 5e specifically, after like really early on, you don't really need to worry about provisions. Like Outlanders, the background, can just find food and water for up to like five people without a roll immediately. You've got clerics that can create food and water. So there was no real intensity or what's the word? Um, it just wasn't necessary, it sounds like. It wasn't necessary. Yeah, don't bother with it, guys. Uh, I think you would need a different system besides 5e something a little more simulationist and gritty. Yeah. In, in my grittiest setting, which is Castles and Crusades, that I'm a player in, and I've talked about my friend Martin, who, who runs me in that game, even Martin, as old school as he is, and as hardcore as he is about the rules, and as hardcore as he is about a, a lot of stuff like that, he just doesn't care at all about paying the innkeeper. At this point, <laughs> on his random table rolls, we have rolled enough gold that... You know, he just assumes that we have enough to pay the innkeeper and pay food. And for the first few sessions, I'd, I'd be like, you know, so I'm just going to go ahead and mark off like 10 gold for, for the last couple of weeks. And he just kind of shrugs like, okay. I think that's how you should run games, to be honest. That's not, like, nothing is interesting about it. It's, you're not creating conflict. You're not helping build characters. You're just being annoying for the sake of being annoying. <clears throat> yeah, if a novelist would skip it, you should skip it. <laughs> yeah, you know, you've never read about Bella, you know, in Twilight going to the bathroom. Like you just people yeah. do that. You don't need to know about it. It's not part of the story. We also don't know how much lunch money she had. It's fine. You know, yeah. she she mentions that she doesn't have as much money as Edward a couple times, and then boom, we get it. Yeah, that's uh, a good point. Another failure of mine was I kind of expected the well. A mission statement of the West Marches style games is that your players are in charge of the narrative, that all you're supposed to prep are these locations and these hexes, and your players explore and interact with them on their schedule, right? And it just doesn't really work for the type of game I like to run. I like to run heavily narrative, heavy story games where your your interactions with the world really change it and then it, you know fight backs and you you make that conflict and it, it just doesn't work you show up to a location you go into a dungeon you clear it out you go home nothing has changed for you or the world besides that one specific area of the world so on the one hand Caleb it sounds like it's a beautiful setup with a sandbox but when i think about the most successful sandbox video games, even those have a main quest line and side quest lines and they're sandbox games, sure, but there are different narrative paths you can follow through the sandbox. That way you have a reason to go from point A to point B. Otherwise, it, it, it's too much like real life where why should you leave this town and why should you do anything but work for the blacksmith where you make plenty of gold, you can drink plenty of beer and no one tries to kill you. Yeah, absolutely. And the hook we used was that in this homebrew world, the West March is basically the only place where magic items are plentiful. They exist elsewhere, but it would be, you know, one in a million people would have one. So it created an excuse for people to get out there, but it didn't really 
make an interesting story. All it did was build into the like power gamey MMO sort of gameplay of I want to level up and I want to get magic things. So midway through the campaign or, or earlier, you realize that the players aren't to control the narrative. What do you do to change that? Um, I just started to draw a lot of connections. Uh, we really focused on the town, like I mentioned, and really made that the story. I sort of built up a lot of the NPCs in town, made a bunch of drama in town, and we started to have like every hour, every hour and a half at the beginning of every session would be doing stuff in town and not necessarily fighting, but figuring out what you're going to do to f further this and further um, like Brasswing, which was the company that the uh, one of the players had created, became a pretty big focal point of the game. That's fun. Yeah, yeah I must want to. I almost want to commit the cardinal sin of gaming, which is ooh. Tell me about your campaign, but that's that's usually like telling someone about about your dreams. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yes, war stories is a good term I've heard for it. Where it's just not interesting to people that weren't there. Yeah. But um, I think besides that, I really focused on kind of making the factions in the wild be a little more interactive with the world around them. But I, I don't think it really came through that well based upon the feedback that I got at the end of the game. The people that were really engaged with the game and were spending a lot of time in the world and a lot of sessions, you know, they got it. They understood what was going on. But for 50% of my players or more, there wasn't a story to speak of. Yeah, that, that speaks to real life. I mean, Mike, when I think about our games, I, I need a villain to like spit in your face you know, or shove you down and kick sand in your face before you really engage with hating them. Otherwise, you know, life is too short and politics are, you know, trouble enough in real life. Who wants to go out looking for trouble like that? Yeah. And I think we, uh, we just discussed on the last episode we recorded, not the last episode of this one, but the one before last about having, you know, that, that straight up front hook at the very beginning of the campaign, because, we meander and have trouble getting, you know, engaged. Yeah, that was my experience with the whole campaign, I think. <laughs> but um, I think because of that lack of stuff, that's how we sort of figured out how cool Slack was. And I think that's why people engage there. And they sort of made the story for themselves, even if it wasn't at the table. You know, they made it off the table. Did they get better at it? Um, at controlling the narrative? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> That's a fair but, answer. It's a yeah. it, it, it's a lot to ask of players, uh, and and there's well, a certain type of GM you see on the internet that get frustrated at at how entitled players are who just show up and play. And I'm not saying your players did that because obviously I don't know them, but that's part of the luxury of being a player. And when I get to be a player, I I enjoy that. And taking control of the narrative can be a lot. I'll engage with your hook all day long, but I've got to be in control. I didn't prep for this, and I'm looking at a table of five other players. What if they don't like what I have to say? Yeah, and another barrier to that was if when you're looking around the table, many of those players you may have never even played with before, or even if you did play with them, you played with them two months ago, and they were two characters ago. They've died twice since the last time you saw them. So it was hard to get people to engage at the table because there wasn't time to build their backstories every session. Because if you spent the time really diving into all these new characters around you, you just have to do it next session again. Ooh, side question. Did you ever have a player that you didn't know? Showing uh, up at this yeah, game? yeah, a lot, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I really, I haven't run a con game yet, but I really want to after this. It made me a lot more... I would recommend just doing it to make yourself more confident in GMing because when you have people showing up that you don't even know their names and they're sitting down at their table and within the first five minutes you're doing like a weird goblin voice at them, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting experience. That's Yeah, that's awesome. My only issue with con gaming, just so you're aware, yeah, is sharing the space with other GMs and the, the weird goblin voice is fine when you can do it at, at you know, normal volume, 
But when you're suddenly in a small conference room surrounded by five other gaming tables, the thing yeah. that surprised me the most about con gaming was the amount of yelling I had to do. Hmm. Um, there was one point when, uh, so we're, we're, we're playing, right? And I'm leaning way over to hear the lady next to me telling me what she wants to what wants her character to do. And I'm leaning so far over and I'm, I'm like putting my left ear like right to her head to try to hear. And I wound up looking at the ceiling while I'm doing this. And my other player started looking at the ceiling in kind of a worried way. And I'd be like, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm, I'm leaning, I'm leaning over to hear. That's great. <laughs> but the room is so loud. Uh, so don't, don't do a con game. I, I had a lot of fun with it. Don't, um, don't prep a lot of voices for it because the voice loses a lot of its effect when you're yelling it. That's a great lesson learned, Dusty. Thanks. <laughs> oh, no, no worries. <laughs> um, I think uh, this is a success, not a lesson learned, but uh, scheduling worked out really well. Um, uh, that was easily my favorite thing about running the game was I could day of decide I feel like playing D&D &D today and go, hey, when I get home at 4 p.m. today, I'm running a game who's in. And with the player base, you have you have people that are willing to jump at that chance, and you can play whenever you want. That part was really cool. That's awesome. Um, and then back into lessons learned, um, I did a thing where death was super important to the game. You know, I kind of just went out of my way to kill people before this campaign. I've been jamming for like ten years, and I've never killed a player that didn't want to die before this game uh, that I ran last year. So that was a pretty big mission statement for me is I want people to die all the time. And how I did leveling for it was if you died at like level 15, you dropped to level five or something like that. And I had even played around with the idea of having everyone drop back to level one every single Ooh. time they died. Um, as a player, I just think that kind of grittiness is fun i really enjoy that i really enjoy like crawling through a muddy trench you know as you have artillery rain down around you um but what it did was reward people for metagaming and reward people for playing cautiously and not accepting failure i i think one of the biggest lessons you can learn as a player is failure is the most fun part of an rpg and you should be looking for your ways for your character to fail, not succeed, because it gets you into more interesting situations. And this was not that was not the case in this game. So I, I would definitely do that differently. I think that someone losing a character they've played for 10 sessions is enough punishment without hurting their XP. Yeah, so so overly conservative play. Well, we've often we on this pod on, on this show and also other podcasters, we often compare, you know, tabletop role playing games to improv exercises, and and the whole you know yes and all of that comes from acting improv classes and anything that makes you do that conservatively, you're gonna yeah. fail. I mean, I mean, yeah. What was the guy's name that wrote The Great Gatsby? I, I'm embarrassed that I've forgotten. Fitzgerald. That. Fitzgerald. Thank you. Um, famously would only write when he was incredibly drunk. And I, I suppose a part of that is lowering your inhibitions so that you don't write conservatively. Wow. That's so interesting. I had never connected, you know, encouraging conservative role play R O L L rolling the dice conservatively um, with conservative R O L E role play. But that's a really good point. If you're too afraid of constant, Mike, we often say we're not afraid enough of consequences. So I still think I need to correct back to having more death. Yep. But uh you reach a certain point where you just can't. I mean, if you're if you've been playing with the characters for so long and you take one of them out of the game, it becomes really difficult, I think, to integrate a new character into the story. If I've got two characters in Martin's Castles of Crusades game. Castles of Crusades is bloody lethal. <laughs> if one of them died, I'd be okay. If the other one died, I would put on a brave face. I would never let Martin know that I was affected, but oh my God, I would be super yeah. bothered. Yeah. Um, I, uh, my friend, I have a friend who I've died like 
three times in his campaigns, and two of those were TPKs in the same game. <laughs> we had our entire party wiped oh. twice within like two or three sessions. And the first one was heartbreaking, you know, and then you come back, you build a new character. And the second one was infuriating. I mean, it, it, when you spend that much time and effort figuring out a character and really thinking about who you are, and then they just die that quickly, uh, it makes it harder to invest in another one, you know? Yeah. That's it. And, and, and you know what? I keep making the MMO analogy, and I'm going to keep doing it. MMOs yeah. struggle with the same idea of how badly do you punish death? If you punish it too badly, you're punishing your bread and butter casual players um, that that make up the backbone of your game and and your hardcore players need someone to interact with and someone to grief. So if you chase away all the casuals, then the hardcores have have no one to fight but each other. Yeah, I think in the past I've I've had a really hard time killing players and and I think I just overcorrected to the far side of it. I think we had like seventeen player deaths in the whole game, and yeah, lesson learned for sure. Uh, one thing I did get out of this game, though, was I had an intro ritual, which, uh, like you said earlier, Chris Perkins does something similar, where the premise of it is just find something. It doesn't matter what it is. Find something you can say that grounds yourselves, grounds yourself, and grounds your players into the game and brings the focus to the table. Make it long enough that people can finish the conversations they're having and come back into the game. For me, it was um, uh, only two stories are told in the West March. The first is a tale of exploration, discovery, of retaking what was lost and bringing it back into the light of civilization. And the second story, the more probable, the one told by, and then I'd list all the characters that had died so far, uh, the story of how you died. And then we would start the game. And it was long enough that people would kind of shut up and then they got into the game and it was easier for me to start GMing because I didn't have that awkward phase where I'm not quite in character yet, for lack of a better word. Now, were you playing in person? Yeah. Occasionally, I think we did three remote games in the whole campaign, but yeah, all in person. So describe the space, like how big a room, like are you standing up and projecting your voice? Is everyone already sitting around the table? Like, like, how are you? Are you making eye contact? How are you bringing everyone together with this ritual? Yeah, uh, I I would definitely start sitting for a while. Um, something that I I do is I get real I get real nervous right before I do that grounding ritual. Still, and I'll just kind of gather my thoughts while people are bullshitting. The space would be uh, most of the people. Most of the people would be around the table. Um, I'd be sitting down. Typically, I'll just be gathering my thoughts, kind of staying quiet while people catch up on their lives, you know, what they've been doing for 10 minutes or so. And then uh, after everyone's gathered around, except for like maybe one person, I'd stand up and then just start going and be like, hey, guys, thanks, everybody, for coming. I really appreciate you all. Um, yeah, let's do it. And then I'd start the intro ritual after kind of getting people's attention. Make eye contact for sure. And especially focus on people that are having their own conversations. A tip I've heard is to walk behind people that are being particularly loud. And I found that's effective if you want to walk around the table. But um, the space we had, my living room is not very large. I live in like a small condo. And because we'd use like massive mats, we'd move, we'd rearrange my entire living room and set up two six foot tables side by side to accommodate everyone. So it was always a little uh, packed in here whenever we did it. Got it. Yeah, for Chris Perkins, when he talked about it in his fourth edition DM blogs, it was always previously in Iomandra, previously, you know, in whatever campaign world he's in. And that's how he brought everyone's attention to him while he briefly recapped the previous game using that always phrase, you know, previously in, in, in his game world. And I like that. I think I really need a ritual. Mike, I'm thinking back to when we played fourth edition and you guys would come over, you know, we'd pick a random weekend and you guys would come over around lunchtime. We had this whole bring your own lunch rule and we'd all be finishing lunch and uh, personal conversations would wind down 
I would let it get awkward. I'd wait for the awkward pause, and then I would say, so, you guys ready? And mm-hmm. then uh, usually, Mike, you, you would follow on with, let's do it. Yeah. So I, 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 that's a good I, I think in our, our most recent games, yeah, we've we've kind of lost the ability to do that, right? Because we all kind of trickle in one by one, and we're really pressed for time. So, so maybe there is something there about just having some some upfront time, where the the DM can gather their thoughts and everybody can can get their their stuff out of the way. Another thing we do uh, for my actual play, I'm not sure if I do it in like a home game, but we'll have a warm up scene where. Uh, I'd set the scene as a DM and then everyone kind of BSs around in character, staying in character the whole time for like five minutes until the conversation kind of tapers out and then we start the game. And the sessions we do that in, uh, we have a lot easier time staying in character for sure. Awesome. Um, After that, I think the last big, big success I had was really playing up factions in the wilderness west marches has this concept that all of the west marches are these wild wastelands where civilization hasn't touched and you are really the first people that are exploring this area and for me that's a problem because i like the interaction players have with npcs and the things that that brings to the table i'm not a huge fan of combat so i needed some way to spice it up Um, there's a third there's a third-party supplement for 5th edition from Kobold Press called the Tome of Beasts, I believe. And it had these really interesting sections where there were these uh, like demigod-esque figures that each had domain over different areas. So there was like the River King and the Lord of Light and Shadow. And then the one that came up the most often somehow was this... Uh, this is getting into war stories territory, you guys, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Go for it, man. There's there's a creature in there called Mesmakemen, or Old Honeypaws, as he's known. And he's like the lord of bees and bears. So his entire land, which was one hex, 12 miles by 12 miles, um, had a ton of honeybees everywhere in it. And it was patrolled by bear folk carrying like humans on chains that would transform into werebears and they'd use these to attack people. And it was supposed to be kind of a hostile faction that controlled this area and stopped the players from setting up uh, like outposts, right? I didn't want them to be able to expand the town out that far. But what happened is the first party that encountered them rolled two natural 20s in a row on their persuasion checks with these uh, the guards of his territory. So they took him to meet the king, and then the same player rolled another natural 20 on Mesmachemid, old honey paws, and then they just had this big old party that lasted an entire day. And then for the rest of the game, it became a thing where if people went out to that side of the march, they'd go, uh, let's stop by the Gleaming Crag and go party with the Honey King for a day. And then we'd like have a 20 minute aside of everyone role playing, fighting with each other. He had a wand that could transform people into bears and have them fight each other. It was good. See, it's it's stories like that, that this is why RPGs are fun. The the fact that you think it's a hostile faction, but, but the dice have their way with the game. I and agree. It, Letting the dice have their way with the game and, and responding to that. That's what makes it unexpected. It, it, yeah. I started using this thing from Dungeon World, I believe it was. If it's not, I'm sorry, listeners. But they're called fronts, where you would create enemy factions or things that would be happening, call them fronts. And each front would have events that would occur if nobody stopped them. And you'd assign those for each front the players are fighting, and which I assign them to factions. And then factions would start to encroach and attack other factions in the land of Westmarch. So it created like the narrative. That's sort of how I pivoted in the last half of the game, is they were talking to old honeypaws and helping them go after the crow people. And there were some ghouls they were messing with down south. On a, on a smaller scale, that's exactly what I do. I, I, I think about the antagonists. I think about what they're doing if no one interferes. And then that way, when people interfere, I know how they'll react. And and by the way, you're right. It's Dungeon World. Um, it's actually Apocalypse World. And then when Dungeon World 
did their their hack or derivation of Apocalypse World, they, they included the same fronts concept. And whether you run Apocalypse World or Dungeon World or not, those are excellent reads for fun mechanics on awesome ways to do maps and countdown clocks and fronts and just all sorts of things that that you know push narrative and push a responsive narrative that responds to what the players do. Yeah, I think if you're going to run West March, you need to figure out that problem really early on. I don't really know what the solution is, but I think leaving the control of the game in the player's hands doesn't really work. I'm not sure I would run this game exactly the same way ever again. I didn't really enjoy that part of the format. I liked being able to play with a bunch of random people all the time, but I need to somehow take that and still keep the magic of an RPG, and I'm not sure how to do that yet. Got it. All right, Caleb, that's awesome. Dude, I can't thank you enough for reaching out, for sharing. I, I'd never heard of a West Marches campaign. I, last episode, I learned a lot about what it is and how to how to run it, how to think about it, how to conceptualize it. And then here, you've shared a lot where I feel like, I, I and I really feel like I could do this successfully if I knew 30 people um, that are willing to play. And I, and I want to find that now. I'm, I'm jealous that you have that where you are. But seriously, thanks for telling us about this and thanks for sharing your lessons. Yeah, of course, man. Uh, I feel really good about the game. Uh, if you want to find more of my stuff, you can go to soundslikecrows.com. Uh, I run an actual play, which is a lot more story-focused than West March. Um, it's set in Deadlands, which is a horror-western steampunk show. Uh, all the players are brothers, which is the hook, and it's my favorite game I've ever run. I think stylistically, it's pretty similar to what you guys want to do. Um, where you leave in a lot of the mechanics so people can learn stuff, but you cut enough out that it's still interesting to listen to as its own product. Um, besides the website, you can find it on any like podcast catcher if you search sounds like crows, and crows is spelled like Russell Crow. Yeah, with an E. And then your Twitter handle is... I'm at Marshall Caleb, and the show is at Sounds of Crows instead of Sounds Like Crows. Got it. All right. Well, thank you. And those at home, thank you for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned. And we're sharing ours with you.